Our sermon today is taken from Exodus chapter 32, verse 32, chapter 34, uh, verse 10. This is the word of God. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit the sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offsprings I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the Tent of Meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the Tent of Meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out of the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And all the people saw and when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the tent, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, 
I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for men shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall never be seen. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds gaze, graze upon opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed, by, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on, on children and the children's children to the third and fourth gener generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped, and he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us off, take us from your, for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Patrick. Okay, so we're continuing in our series, the book of Moses. And that, as I said, obviously was a very long passage. And I can't explain every single detail of it because it'll be too long, too much to do. But hopefully at the end, we'll get the main gist of the passage. So if you haven't been with us for the past few months... Let me just recap of what's going on and what happened here. God, if you remember way back in the book of Exodus, freed Israel from the slavery of Egypt, right? Why did God do that? So that the people of Israel may dwell with God. That is the main purpose of their salvation, for God to dwell with them. That was the whole point of their redemption. Without the dwelling of God and his people, the redemption means nothing. So after God freed them in Exodus chapter 14 finally, through the Red Sea, and they, and they reach uh, Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. Do you remember what was there in Exodus chapter 19? God's presence. Finally, right? Israel was thinking to themselves, finally we're here. Finally, God's presence uh, is there, and we can live and dwell with God and have relationship with God. And then, in Exodus chapter 20, at Mount Sinai, God gave them the Ten Commandments. And you're thinking now, you know, what's the whole point of these Ten Commandments See, this proves God is a tyrant. Christianity just wants me to obey God and follow all these weird rules. It, it's not. 
Why did God give them the Ten Commandments? It's connected to this whole theme of being with God. Because obeying these commandments is what it means to be in a relationship with God. You see, every relationship has a particular dynamic to it. The natural dynamic that my wife and I have is different than the natural dynamic that my daughter and I have, and is different than the natural dynamic that my daughter and my son has, and is going to be different than the natural dynamic that my children and their friends will have. There are different ways of relating because of the different statuses and, and things like that. So what kind of natural dynamic do you think would exist when God, the creator king, enters into a relationship with his creatures? Naturally, it'd be one of rule and obedience. That is, that is a natural way creatures relate to the, to the creator, right? God didn't give them the Ten Commandments because he's a tyrant. God gave them the Ten Commandments because obeying the Ten Commandments is a natural dynamic that would happen when a creature has a relationship with his creatures. Just like I have authority over my daughter, not because I'm a tyrant, I have authority over my daughter because that's the natural dynamic that would happen when a father and a daughter has a relationship. That's just how it is. Obeying the Ten Commandments is what it means for Israel to dwell with God, to be with God. This is it. Ten Commandments, you're here. You get to be with God. But sure enough, if you remember the story, a few days later, they broke the Ten Commandments and they worshiped a false god. Do you remember that in Exodus chapter 32? They broke the creator-creature relationship, and now God is no longer dwelling with them. That's what we see in our passage, this this awkward, uncertain situation of what's going to happen. Is God going to leave them? You know, because if he does, then it's all over. They'll never find peace. They'll never find rest. They can't not be with God. That's the whole point of their salvation. That's why when, when God told Moses, hey, The Israelites broke my commandments. You guys just go on ahead to the promised land without me. Go ahead. Go to the promised land. What did Moses say? No. We're not doing that. We're not leaving without you. The whole point of this is you. We can't find rest in the promised land. The walls, these big walls, the the, the really uh, strategic terrain it's located in, the soldiers that are there, that's not what it's give us rest. Walls can be scaled. Terrains can be navigated through. Soldiers can be beaten. We can't be at rest unless you, the most powerful being in the universe, is with us. Rest is found when God is with us. The question here is now, how can Israel know that God will be with them after all they've done? How can you know that God's going to be with you? How can I know that God's going to be with me after all we've done? Well, hopefully that's what our passage will talk about uh, as, as we dive into it and address that, that tension, that question that it presents. But before that, I do want to address, at this point, some of you may be looking at the dates, and you, you're going to see that it's December 22nd, and you're thinking to yourself, I'm glad we're continuing in this series of Exodus, but where's my Christmas sermon? I want my Christmas sermon, you know, my, I want my Christmas passage. And don't worry, this is a Christmas sermon. Just like every passage of the Bible is a Christmas passage, and I hope at the end we're going to see how, how that is so, okay? Three things I want to point out from the passage. Point one, the cause of our unrest. Point two, our only hope for rest. And point three, our true source of rest. The cause of our unrest, our only hope for rest, and our true source of rest. First point, the cause of our unrest. Okay, 
So, last week, in chapter 32, we saw that Israel broke the Ten Commandments by worshiping a false god. And then, if you remember in the story, God revealed that all, out of all the Israelites there, you remember this? It was kind of weird. Out of all the Israelites there, there was 3,000 people that was particularly guilty. More guilty than the others somehow. And because of that, God killed him. Straight up killed him. <laughs> because the consequences of sin is death. Okay? And, and the ones that were not particularly guilty, God let live. So now, we're in our passage today, Exodus chapter 32, verse 30, the first verse in our passage, if you take a look at it, when Moses was described as talking to the people, who were these people Moses is talking to? Well, these people were the people that were left behind, not the 3,000, the others that God let live. But yet, you see in this passage, okay, does that mean that these people are less guilty or they're not guilty? No, they're still guilty, just like the 3,000. Look at, look at verse 33. What did Moses say? You have sinned. And that's why in verse 35, the Lord sent a plague upon them. So now you're thinking, okay, so there's 3,000 people that was particularly guilty, that was killed, but then there's these other group of people that wasn't as guilty, but yet they're still guilty. Are they innocent? What, how do you explain this? I think... The best way to explain what's going on here is through the concept of corporate evil. You ever heard of that term? Another word for it is systemic evil. Systemic evil says acts of evil is not really just done by one individual alone. There is often a whole system or a whole culture that contributes to that act of evil. Okay? The act itself may have been done by one person, and we don't want to take responsibility away from that person, but we also must realize that the reality is we're not just products of our individual choices. Talk to any legitimate counselor, psychiatrist, sociologist. They'll tell you, they'll all would agree that if, it, if an individual does something bad, yeah, it's on them. Yes, it's their fault. But to a large degree, their childhood, their parents, their family life, their social upbringing, their friend circles, their cultural dispositions, their financial situations, their educational level. There's a whole system that plays a role into this act of evil. For example, a kid joins a gang and stoles a motorcycle and hurts somebody. Why? Yes, it's that kid's fault. I'm not taking blame away from them, but, but why? Because this kid never grew up with good guidance from anyone. Why? Because this kid lived in a poor neighborhood and both the parents were exhausted working two full-time jobs each just to feed the family and put food on the table. And also because of that, the parents can't really pay for good schooling with good teachers. Why? Well, because for the most part, good, good teachers only really are willing to teach in, in good schools with high pay. They're not willing to teach in low-budget schools. Well, why do these schools have terribly low budgets? Shouldn't the government be subsidizing them? Well, the government of this country has been corrupt for the past 50 years. Why isn't anybody doing anything about that? Well, because the rich and powerful, who do have the power to do something about that, isn't directly affected by the corruption, so they're not really too motivated to do anything about something they're not directly affected by. So who's responsible? The kid who stole the motorcycle? Yes, absolutely. But to an extent, there's a systemic evil 
that played a role. To a degree, we all were involved. I, Israel's idolatry in Exodus 32, whose fault is it? Yes, the 3,000 main head honchos, they did it. It's their fault. But how about the other Israelites there? Well, they either participated in it, or they let it happen, or they turned a blind eye, or they decided not to do anything about it. Some are more responsible than others, yes, but all share the blame. That's why in verse 35, if you read it, you'll see it intermixing uh, between responsibilities. Look at verse 35. The Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one Aaron made. And you're thinking, wait, who, who made the calf? Aaron or the people? How can the people make the calf that Aaron made? Whose fault is it? The answer is yes. Aaron was responsible, but everyone contributed and in one way or another. That's also in verse, why in verse 33, verse, sorry, verse thir- chapter 32, verse 31 and 32, uh, Moses begged God on, the, on behalf of the Israelites, who were not the 3,000, who were not dead. Moses said, alas, this people have sinned, a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses was begging God, forgive them. Forgive them, even to a point where Moses was willing to give up his own life. But, we continue in the story, God rejected Moses. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 1, if you continue in the passage, the Lord answered Moses, depart, go from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from here. Skip to chapter, uh, chapter 33, verse 3, and I will not go up among you. God is not going to go with them. God's going to leave these Israelites alone. Why? Because they're all systematically guilty in one way or another to this one act of evil. They all were involved. And this is the worst news Israel could ever receive. Look, this wasn't just a setback. This wasn't just a pause in the journey. This is it. If God is not with them, they're done. Look at, look at uh, verse 4 in chapter 33. It describes this as a disastrous event. But why is it so disastrous? God is still telling them to go on to the promised land. God still gloomed this awesome, amazing city with big walls and fancy protection. Why, why is this disastrous? Because the Israelites, they realize unless God is with them, there is no guarantee. There is no guarantee that I'll be safe, that I can rest. If you're anything like me, you might find yourself often idolizing the future. Do you do that? Or am I the only one? I hope, I hope more than just me do that. <laughs> we, we think, you know, after I've passed this season of life and then I enter into the next season of life, that, you know, that's the promised land. That next season, that's when I'll, that's when I'll be durable. That, that's when I'll be secure. Only to realize that when you get there, that season of life is not as durable or secure as you thought it was going to be. You quickly realize that you're just as vulnerable to hurts in that season of life than you were before. And you quickly learn that there is no geographical location on earth, there is no financial state, nor relationship status, nor physical condition, nor house big enough, strong enough to give you an absolute guarantee that you are safe and that you'll be okay. There doesn't exist. When I was single, I said to myself, you know, once I'm married, 
Once I'm married, then I'll be sturdy. You know, then I'll experience fullness of rest. But ask anyone here who's married. Marriage is great, but that is not the answer for, for full sturdiness and rest. Okay, you know what? The answer isn't marriage. You know what the answer is? The answer is for me to move on to the next season of my career. Let's, let's get done with seminary. Let's plant this church already, right? Let's be a pastor. Once I'm a pastor, then I'll feel sturdy. Then I'll be at rest. And now I'm pastoring a church I've never been more scared in my life. <laughs> what if this messes up? What if that mess up? What if these people, you know, you guys are the cause of my stress? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm just joking. You are not. My sin is. Okay, if it's not marriage, it's not, it's not my career. You know what it is? I know what it is. Here's the answer. Let's have kids. That's the answer. Having children, that is the answer for rest and peace <laughs> in this world. <laughs> I have two kids now. I've never been more anxious in my life. I think I remember a few months ago, I went down stairs three times to check if the door was locked. Three times. I'm in constant just worry. <laughs> no season of life can guarantee you fullness of rest. What you need is a guarantee of verbal promise from an all-powerful being that says, I'm with you. That's what you need. The strongest being in the universe saying, I'm with you. Israel knew walls can be scaled, soldiers can be defeated, terrains can be navigated through. The only way they're going to have true guarantee that at the end of the day they'll be okay is if God sticks with them through the journey into the promised land. What you need is what Israel had, a guarantee from the utmost powerful, he's with you. But how can Israel have this assurance when they've sinned after God's left them? How can you and I have this assurance when we've sinned? You know, we may not be the head honchos of evil in our community, but oh my, have we not contributed to it to a degree? Have we not turned a blind eye here? Turn a blind eye there, contributed to a problem here, contributed to a problem there. At the very least, least, we're implicated, all of us. So why would God remain with you? Me, to give us protection and rest. Well, like the Israelites, we have no hope. Unless, like Israel, we have a stubborn mediator who wouldn't stop begging God to remain with us, which brings us to our second point, our only hope for rest. Here in the next part of the passage, which is chapter, chapter 33, verse 7 to 11, that chunk there, we get this seemingly weird and disconnected part of the story where Moses is meeting with God in a tent outside of the camp, uh, the, the camp, the Israel camp. This, this isn't a disconnected part of the story because if you remember, when Israel broke the commandments uh, in, in Exodus chapter 32, before that, God was in the process of telling them how to build a temple, Why? So that in this temple, God's presence may dwell with them, so that God can be with them in this temple. But now that they've sinned, well, that plan is canceled as well. And now the question is, is God going to dwell with them? The answer is no. God's not going to dwell with Israel anymore, but he's only going to dwell with Moses in this private tent outside of the camp. So it's still connected with the theme of God's dwelling, God, God being with us. So in verse 10, it says, When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, of Moses' tent. By the way, real quick. When God reveals himself like this in the Old Testament, pillar of cloud, big fire, 
burning bush the, or the unburning bush in Exodus chapter 3, that's called theophanies. Okay, there's a new word. Theophanies are times when God reveals his invisible glory to the, to the, visibly to the eye. That happens a lot in the Old Testament. So here, what's happening in chapter 33, verse 10, the people saw a theophany. God's presence is there with Moses in that tent. But all they can do, look at verse 10, is worship each at his own tent door. From a distance, they can't come to God's presence anymore. Only Moses can. Now we're thinking, you know, well, that's nice for Moses. He has nothing to worry about. And you're imagining what are the things that Moses is talking about God in this private meeting here in the, in the tent. And you see what Moses is talking about. He's begging God to stay with Israel. He didn't use this time for private use. He was begging God, stay with Israel. Look at verse 12 to 13 in chapter 33. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too, Moses says, that this nation, these people, are your people. Okay, summary. What Moses is saying is this. Look, God, I know I'm special. <laughs> I know you like me. I know we're okay. But what about these people? I want these people also to come with us and join us in this relationship. So Moses begs God for, for mediates between a God and the people. But again, for the second time here, God rejects Moses in verse 14. Moses said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. The you here in the Hebrew is singular, not plural, not you all, but you. Referring only to Moses, he's rejecting. He's like, no, I don't want these people anymore. I'm done with them. My rest is not going to be with them. My rest is only going to be with you, Moses. But look how stubborn Moses was. He asked God a third time. The stubbornness in this guy, right? Look at verse 15. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up for here, from here. This is like you getting fired from a company and then your best friend, who also happens to be the most valuable employee in that company, saying, if you're firing him, you have to fire me too. That's what Moses is doing. I'm not going without them. They're my people. And, and this is interesting. Why Moses was so stubborn about this? Because last week, stick with me, we saw in Genesis 32 verse 10, God already promised Moses a whole new group of people. Remember God said, Moses, don't worry about it. Leave these people. They're, they're extra baggage. They're sinful. They're broken. Look at them. Leave them. I'm going to give you a new group of people, you know, more clean cut, the cream of the crop. I'm going to give you more obedient people. Don't worry about it. You're not going to be lonely. You're still going to have a people. Just leave them. Moses said, no. I know they're broken, but they're my broken people. And I want them. I don't want anyone else. So Moses continues in his third appeal in verse 16. Uh, Please be with us. How can anybody know that you're with us unless uh, we're distinct unless you're with us? And at this third appeal, it's kind of unexpected, both to the readers and to Moses himself, I think. And the third request, look at verse 17. How does God respond? God said, okay. <laughs> Just like that. He gave in. Verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, okay, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses here is, I'm sure, thinking, 
three is the magic number, like that's all it took? <laughs> I asked you three times and it worked? Your people broke your eternal rule and offended an eternal God, and all it took was me asking you three times. It was that easy? And Moses was in disbelief. How do we know that? Because of what he said in verse 18. After God agreed, okay, I'll be with the people now. Moses was like, I don't know. Prove it to me. That's why he said, show me your glory. Show me your glory. What do I mean by proving it to me with Moses saying, show me your glory? If, if you remember throughout this whole time, whenever God gives Moses a verbal promise, go forth, go, I'll be with you. Be at rest, be at peace, go forth. Whenever God made a verbal promise like that, God always stamps and validates that verbal promise with two things. One, God tells Moses his name. My name is Yahweh. And then the second the stamp, the second validation, is God shows a theophany. God reveals himself, his glory, to the naked eye. Remember Exodus chapter 3? What did God say? Go forth, Moses. Go, free my people. Don't worry, I'm with you. Go, free my, go, go fight Pharaoh. And God, what did God do? He said, I'm Yahweh. I am the great I am. And what did he show Moses in the unburning bush? A theophany. Stamp. I'm, trust my words. Okay, Exodus 19, when God said, go forth with courage and boldness, I freed you out of Egypt. Now obey these 10 commandments. Go live like that. I'll be with you. What did God do? He said his name. My name's Yahweh. And then there was a theophany. It wasn't fire in a bush, but it was fire where? On top of Mount Sinai. Exodus 24, God collected all of Israel's leaders and he told them, go forth. Go with courage and boldness. Go to the promised land. I'll be with you. Lead my people. God stamped, validated that verbal promise with two things. Again, he called, he told his name Yahweh, and then there's a theophany. This time, they were in this fire thing, and God showed them, verse uh, 10, I think, in chapter 24 says, his feet, which is symbolic because God is a spirit. He has no body parts, but there's some kind of theophany that happened there. And now, God is telling Moses another promise. Go. Go, I'm with you. And Moses is saying, uh... Show me your glory. Prove it to me. Validate it like you validated it four, three times before. That's why in chapter 34, verse 4, if you would put your eyes there, Moses went up to the mountain. And in chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before him, which is what? A theophany. And then the Lord proclaimed his name, the Lord, the Lord, or in Hebrew, Yahweh, Yahweh. And that's what God said he was going to do. I'll make my goodness pass before you, theophany, and I'll proclaim my name uh, before you, Yahweh. He stamped it. Look, solidifying it, I will be with you. Trust me. Now move forward in boldness. But, but even after this, Moses was still not fully convinced. He still did not trust the Lord. How do we know that? Because the way Moses addressed the Lord in verse 9. Chapter 34, verse 9. Verse 8, God said, okay, I've made a promise. I'm going to be with you. And then in, in uh, verse 8, God showed Moses his back, which is the theophany, and proclaimed his name Yahweh. And now, this is how Moses responds. If now I found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon their iniquity and sin. Moses is repeating everything God already said. And, and, and this is like... Why are you doing that? I already told you I'm going to be with you. Why are you repeating yourself? It's like me, you know, when my wife Tatiana has woken up with the kids three times in a row, and then the fourth day, she was, because she is so selfless, she goes to me and says, Taser, I'm going to wake up with the kids again tomorrow. And I go, 
So what you're saying is, you're going to wake up with the kids again tomorrow. Yes, that's what I'm saying. I'm going to wake up with the kids again tomorrow. So what you're saying is that 5.30 tomorrow morning, when Liam cries, you're going to wake up with her and he's like, calm down, Tazar. I'm going to, just trust me. I'm going to wake up with the kids tomorrow. Moses is going, you verbally promised me. You validated it through a theophany and a proclamation of your name, but I'm still not convinced. Plus, one more thing, stick with me. On top of that, the word Moses used to call God here in verse 9, you see that, if now I found favor in your sight, O Lord, that phrase, O Lord, it's not in all caps in your Bible, in your translation, right? That means it's not Yahweh. Only in the English, it's all caps, it's Yahweh. This means it's another word God, uh, Moses used to call God. And this word is Donai. Donai was used only four times in the book of Exodus. And every time it's used in the book of Exodus, it's always at a time when Moses was doubting God. Exodus 4, when God told Moses to free Israel, God, Moses didn't want to do that, remember? He doubted God and he said, Donai, choose somebody else. And then later in the same chapter, God told Moses, I don't want to choose somebody else. I want to choose you. Moses said, but Donai, I can't do it. Two times. Another time is Exodus chapter 5. After Moses freed, went to try and free Israel and the plan didn't go so well, right? Pharaoh uh, messed up the plan. And Moses was angry at God. See, Donai, I told you it wasn't going to work. Those are the three times in the book of Exodus. Only three times in the book of Exodus the, the phrase Donai is used. The fourth time is in our verse today. When Moses said, Donai, you are going to be with us, right? You really are going to be here. Moses didn't believe it. And to an extent, I think, Moses was right. It isn't that easy. All it took was me asking three times. It can't be. He's right. It wasn't that easy. For God to be with his people, it took more. It took infinitely more than Moses just asking three times, which leads us to our last point, our true source of rest. So we're in our last verse now, verse 10, chapter 34, and God responds to Moses, right? Uh, Don't I, are you really going to do this? And notice the future tense of God's response here. This is how God answered Moses' doubt. Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels. This is in the future such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. The question is, what future event is God referring to here? And who's the you God is speaking about here? John Calvin does a commentary here. It's kind of vague. I quote, he says, it's vague to whom God will make this covenant with. Is it Moses? Is it David? Is it somebody else? And this is the answer. If you want to know how God can be with you, how the most powerful being can commit himself to you even after you've sinned, even after I've sinned, and we want to know how can this be, to find that answer, we have to follow the pattern that we've been talking about this whole time. What pattern? The two things I mentioned earlier of how God validates his verbal promise. Remember, one, whenever God says a promise, he declares his name and he shows his glory a theophany, right, to the naked eye. That's what happened. One thing I want you to notice about these theophanies, the ones I've described earlier, every one of them increased in a degree of glory as we go along. The first one, it was Exodus chapter 3. What was the theophany? 
it was the fire and the unburning bush. God said, I'm going to be with you, Moses. My name's Yahweh. Here's an unburning bush to validate my claim. And then in Exodus 19, go Israel, go forth with, with boldness. Uh, here's my name, Yahweh. And how does he show himself? With fire too, but where? How big? Much bigger, right? On top of Mount Sinai. And then Exodus chapter 24, God says, go forth, Israel, live with boldness, obey my commandments. Here's my name, I'm Yahweh. And then he shows not only this fire, but in the fire to these leaders of Israel, God showed them his what? His feet. And now to Moses, same thing, I'm with you, I'm with you. Be at peace, be at rest, go forth, go with boldness. My name is Yahweh. And God showed him not his feet, but his his back. There's an increase of degree of, of, of revelation of his glory as we morph, move forth. Now, if you keep following that pattern to the New Testament, you'll find another instance where God again does these two things. Where? When Jesus was born in Matthew 1, 23, first, God declared his name. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's dwelling with us. He's here. And also, God showed us his glory. But this time, not just through a theophany, not through a pillar of cloud or fire, God showed the fullness of his glory to the naked eye. How? By being born himself in a helpless babe. See, I told you, Christmas. God has made a verbal promise to his people in his word. I will never leave you. I will never leave you. And we, like Moses, often in our lives doubt him. We say, prove it. Prove it. Because right now, it sure doesn't seem like it. Right now, it seems like you're not around. Prove it. And God validated that verbal promise, not through a pillar of fire or a glory cloud. He did it by coming down himself as a helpless baby. The one in Hebrews chapter 1 describes as a radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He came himself and validated that verbal promise on a cross. Don't you see? I'll never leave you. Ever. Moses was right. It wasn't that easy. It took infinitely more than him asking three times. It took infinitely more than he could ever imagine for God to stick with his people. We sung it earlier. The Lord Jesus God incarnate, light of life, dispel my darkness. Let your frailty strengthen me. Let your meekness give me boldness. Let your burden set me free. Oh, Emmanuel, my Savior, let your death be life for me. He doesn't want other people. He wants you. But I'm rugged. I'm, I'm second class. You're his broken people. I'm his broken people. And you know if you believe this, those who've trusted in this, they have a guarantee to a verbal promise 
made by the most powerful being in the universe that he will never leave you. And if this is you, you know what you can do now? You know what power you have now? Whatever season of life you're in, no matter how your finances are, oh my goodness, no matter how your career is doing, no matter how your health is doing, you now know in the incarnation and in his death on the cross at the end, you'll be okay. And you know what you can do now? Something you've been trying to do your whole life but have not succeeded. You can now rest. Don't wait until you're married. Don't wait until your career blooms. Rest now. He's with you. Go forth in boldness. Follow him. Go, God is saying. Take risks for him. Obey him even when it's costly. Go with courage. And live your life with a kind of audacity that only someone who knows God is with them would have. Because death now is just a passing shadow. He's taken the real thing for you. Go live your life with a kind of audacity that only someone who knows God is with them would have. Because he's assured you that he is by revealing the fullness of his glory in a meek manger on a cross. He will never leave you. Let's pray. This is the gospel that the most powerful being in the universe came down and became weak so that I may be strong. He who has the power to control the stars put himself in a manger, helpless, seemingly without reasoning, and onto weak Roman soldiers that he could have made disappear by a flick of the wrist. Yet he submitted himself and kept his mouth shut so that I and we may be free. What an amazing gospel. What an amazing redemption. Oh, Jesus, let your meekness make me bold. Let your frailty strengthen me. And help us, Father, embrace this good news, this gospel, as we sing our last song of response, pondering the wonderful mystery of the God who became flesh for me. And in his name alone we pray. Amen.